This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. If someone makes you laugh, are you more likely to find them hot? It's a strange question, but it's one that maybe you've asked yourself over the years. Do you think you've got a better chance of hitting it off with someone if you're in stitches on a date? Because a lot of people will say, all that matters is that I have someone who makes me laugh. But we're about to find out later in this podcast, the science might not be backing that up. There's some Australian research that's found funny could be overrated. Does this surprise you? We're going to get into that later. Please stay listening for that. We're also taking a look at a campaign to crack down on sexual violence at music festivals. What is being recommended? What do we need to see more of at festivals to keep people safe, make sure they're informed? First, though. Hack. A lot of the laws are stacked against the worker, and they've been made that way over the past 20 years or something. On Triple J. Have you ever gone on strike from your job? Because in some countries, it happens all the time. People are always on strike, but not really in Australia. Like, you hear about it sometimes, maybe recently, as supermarket workers going on strike, other people, but it's not as common as it once was. Even though striking is a really powerful tool that in history workers have used when they're fighting for things like more pay, better conditions. So is the massive drop in strikes having an impact on our wages here in Australia? We've got an expert on in a bit to ask those questions because it seems like there might be some links there. There's definitely some trends. First though, Joe Lord has been out meeting some workers who've been striking for more than three months. I've just pulled up. They've got some music pumping. There's a few guys in high-vis standing around. There's a barbecue. It all seems pretty pretty chill. Honestly, it sounds like a bit of a party. I'm in Thomastown in Melbourne's northern suburbs at a picket line where a group of electricians are striking. Their setup reminds me of a festival campsite. So this is Dave, our shop steward. Hey, I'm Joe. I didn't request this as, like, walk-in music, but I'm not mad about it. Dave is the shop steward and also the union rep. We're on the side of the road here out the front of Ennesis in Thomastown. We've got about, you know, 30, 40 metres of nice grass and trees that we've made our home over time. And uh, every day we set up and pack up and wait for a response from the people inside. And what is the dispute over? Uh, It's mainly based around a fair cost of living increase um, and some better structures in regard to some of our career progression. And how long have you guys been out here for? We have entered our 13th week. They work making batteries and infrastructure for phone communications and they all worked through COVID. Josh is one of the young electricians here and it's his first time on strike. It's been good that we're all in it together, but it's tough that we have to do it in the first place. The strength in numbers, if we don't stick together, you just get walked over. You won't get what you need. Jacko's 29 and it's also his first time taking industrial action. It has its days, you know, when the weather's a bit crappy, it's a bit crappy, but days like today when the sun's out, it's, yeah, it's good. All the boys are having fun together and, yeah, it's good. What's been the low point of being out here for 13 weeks? Yeah, just the no money coming in, the struggles at home. Um, I'm having to move back with my folks this weekend because just, yeah, can't afford to rent. And so, yeah, that's, that's the downside of it, yeah. And he reckons most of his friends haven't been on strike either. Uh, most of them have been pretty surprised that we're doing it, like, because they've never done it as well. They're like, oh, what's it like? And, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they've been pretty surprised, actually. Yeah. Well, like, how do you just do it? How you just, you know, why don't you just go look for another job? But if we do that, then it defeats the purpose of what we're doing. So, yeah. 
The thing is, industrial action like this is rare in Australia these days. For starters, not just any worker can legally go on strike. Because you've got to jump through a few hoops to go on strike, you actually can't go on strike unless you're um, protected by a union or involved in the agreement. There's a good chance that you've never missed a day of work because you've been on strike. I haven't before, although I am a member of my media union. In the last 20 years, the number of working days lost through strikes in Australia has fallen by 97%. But that's not the case everywhere. There was even the major Hollywood writer strike recently. Now, America's film and TV industry is expected to grind to a halt today as tens of thousands of Hollywood actors join screenwriters in the first industry-wide strike in more than 60 years. But they are still happening in Australia. In my experience, it's the it's the constant cuts, it's the overwork, it's the lack of meaningful pay increases, and it's seeing the impact of that on my colleagues especially. Jack went on strike recently from his job at RMIT Uni. I've never been on strike before until now. It's something that I've always sort of agreed with in theory or just vaguely remember as being something kind of annoying in the background when I was a kid before I understood all that stuff. Um, and then a few years ago, I thought I should join my union. When I asked Jack what he thought about the declining rates of union membership amongst young Australians. This is what he said. Yeah, it's sort of like joining an archery club or something, right? It's sort of just not front of mind for people. But uh, it really does matter. Sorry, I was trying not to laugh. It's a great example. I mean, I think of archery all the time. It's my Roman Empire. Seriously, though, Jack says the strike was a great moment for him as a worker. Well, first, I actually went to the wrong place. So for me personally, it was a bit... Uh, a little bit stressful at first, uh, but it was really exciting seeing everyone there, uh, hundreds of us uh, gathered, and then we actually met up with a whole group of strikers from Melbourne University. So uh, tutors, administrators, lecturers, students marched down Swanston Street to meet us, and that was this incredibly euphoric moment seeing, uh, it was like, wait, you're not alone. There's all of these other people there as well. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder there with that story. I want to get into this a bit more now. Keen to hear why it is so hard to strike in Australia right now, what kind of impacts that could be having on us, on our society. Alan Kohler, he's the ABC's finance lord. He's an expert on everything. He's here with us now to explain. G'day, Alan. Thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. No worries. Basically, we're not striking as much as we used to in Australia. Is it a good or bad thing? I'm a bit sorry to see it go, to be honest. I think that um, striking is the way that uh, workers negotiate, really, and without the ability to strike, which has kind of been removed. You know, I think that the balance between capital and labour has been tipped too far. So I, I just think that the, the pendulum has swung a bit too far. There was probably too many strikes uh, back in the 80s, but having virtually none now, I think, is going too far. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look at, and I guess it is a bit of a fine line between, you know, striking too much and people facing disruptions all of the time, but then also making sure workers are getting, uh, you know, the most out of their employers. Is there historically a strong link between striking and wage growth? I'm not sure that there's a, a link that's been established academically, but it is the case that uh, wage growth has declined at the same time as the number of strikes has declined. So, as you can draw your own conclusion, that's certainly a, a coincidence, uh, but it may not be causation. Why is it less common now? Like, what's changed that means it's more difficult for people to strike? Well, essentially, John Howard made it past the law that said 
that in order to go on strike, a union and the workers need to get permission from the what's now called the Fair Work Commission. In those days, it was called the um, Arbitration Commission, and then it became um, the Industrial Relations Commission, and now and now it's called the Fair Work Commission. And the Howard government made it so that the that you couldn't go on strike unless they approved it. Uh, so it is still the case that in order to go on strike, you have to get the permission of the Fair Work Commission, and it's just and it's quite bureaucratic. It's difficult to do it. You know, you can you can get permission, obviously, but it's it's you have to jump through a few hoops, and it's quite um, it's quite a process. How are we placed in regards to other countries overseas? Like, what do we see overseas in terms of strike action? Well, America's going through a, a wave of strike action at the moment. Tons of strikes and um, big ones. You know, hundreds of thousands of workers going out. So we probably don't want that. But it is the case, I'm told. Australia is the hardest place in the world to go on strike right now, um, which is interesting. Uh, and I, that, that leads me to conclude that the pendulum has swung too far in Australia. So, um, I, you know, I think that having finding some way to allow uh, workers to, to go on strike a bit more easily would be, I think, a good thing. Do you think there's a lot less knowledge, especially with young people, uh, in terms of strike action, but union membership as well is probably declining? Definitely. Well, that's one of the reasons, I think, that union membership since the 80s, union membership has declined from about 50% to 15, less than 15%. In, in some ways, it's all a bit of a, a consequence of enterprise bargaining, which was introduced by the Labor Party in the late, in the early 1990s as a replacement for centralised wage fixing by the, what was then the Arbitration Commission. And um, it was a kind of, you know, designed to be a way of freeing up the economy, allowing um, much more freedom for companies and workers to negotiate their own wages rather than having it all fixed by the Commission. But I think that the consequence of that has been that, you know, people are less inclined to be members of the unions because they have to negotiate their own wages anyway. So you have enterprise bargaining rather than multi-employer bargaining, which uh, used to be the case where unions used to kind of, um, you know, coordinate lots of different employers or the workers at different employers to, to negotiate on their behalf. And that's now no, no longer really what goes on. So the enterprise bargaining has kind of, I think, really screwed uh, unions uh, to a large extent. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the payoff for the unions has been superannuation, where, whereby they're kind of running these massive super funds and they've got a tremendous amount of power as a result of the money that's in those in these super funds, trillions of dollars. But, but the, that, the pay, that payoff is great for the unions, but it's not so good for the workers, I think, who, who um, um, you know, are, are left to themselves, really, to negotiate. And the problem is that if you can't, or if it's very difficult to go on strike, you know, you, you're negotiating with one hand tied behind your back because the employer can say, I'm going to, I'm not going to give you that money. You know, you, are, you might ask for a, you know, all the workers in a, in a particular company might ask for a 5 or 10% pay rise. And the employer, the boss can say, no, I'm not going to do that. But they can't say, well, then we're not going to work. They can resign, of course, but that's, a, you know, that's a big deal. And it's not really a negotiation. Resigning is just resigning. You're not negotiating anymore. You've just quit. You've left. And so, you know, I think that the, the, the problem is that wages are all about negotiating and, you know, uh, the workers want X and, you know, might want 5%. The, the company might want to pay them 2%. 
And so who gets to win? And the company has all the cards. The, the workers, because it's very difficult to go on strike, they can't really negotiate uh, with anything strong behind them. They can just kind of say, well, you know, we'll apply to the Fair Work Commission. If, you, if you're not careful, we'll go to the Fair Work Commission and ask them if we can go on strike. And the, the boss says, oh, OK, all right, I'll do your worst. So does it feel like there's any appetite to make any changes here? Like, how do you see this playing out in the years ahead? Well, look, I think it is surprising that the Labor Party twice now, and they won in 2007, you know, and then again since uh, 2022, the Labor Party hasn't really tackled this. And every time they kind of talk about it, doing something, business community all goes uh, arcs up and, you know, there's a terrible kind of to-do about it and the business businesses say that the end of the world and so Labor tends to give it away. So, you know, I think uh, Labor is not all that interested in making any radical changes at all because they um, don't want to rock the boat. They just think that they'll be attacked. It's a bit like taxation, really. There's, you know, the Labor Party tried to make some taxation changes in uh, 2019 and lost. They're a bit shy of doing anything, really, particularly anything controversial. It's definitely very interesting insight. ABC finance expert Alan Kohler, thank you very much for breaking that down for us. No worries, Dave. And on the text line, someone says, with the cost of living so high lately, I imagine it's too risky for people to miss out on income by striking. Another person says, there's no surprise that decades of stagnant wages and declining conditions has coincided with dwindling union membership numbers and less strikes. All right, we're moving on now. Hack. A sexual assault survivor advocate is urging the New South Wales government to force music festival organisers to mandate safe spaces at events. On Triple J. We talk a bit about safe spaces, lots of information for people at festivals when it comes to things like pill testing and pushes for that. Because while most people are having a great time at festivals, not everyone is and things can go wrong. Some advocates now are saying that we need safe spaces for sexual harassment and assault support that it should be an absolute must at music festivals all across Australia. If you've got thoughts on this, I'm keen to hear from you. Do you think there is enough support at festivals for people who've experienced sexual violence? Message in 0439 757 Reporter Brooke Chandler has been looking into this and just a warning, this story does discuss sexual violence and spiking. Music festivals are supposed to be about good vibes, you're meeting new people, feeling really relaxed, having a great time. But that's not always the case. Sexual violence and harassment is such a massive thing in music festivals. We don't know how much sexual violence is happening at festivals, but Sarah Williams from Newcastle says it's a serious issue. In 2021, I did have three experiences of sexual assault by three different perpetrators and experienced quite a lot of victim blaming, which is where the name of the organisation, What Were You Wearing, comes from, because that's usually the most commonly asked victim blaming question. And from those three experiences, I just really got fed up and passionate and driven and wanted to see a change to it. Sarah started What Were You Wearing to fight for change to stop sexual violence. She helped convince the New South Wales Parliament to make drink spiking and sexual assault training compulsory for security and bar staff in all licensed venues. While working on the changes, she heard from more than 26,000 victim survivors and found heaps of the stories centred around music festivals. 
Around 14,000 of those were stories of the nightlife, music festivals, street biking. From that, I sort of realised that there's actually such a big issue. So Sarah and her What Were You Wearing team started their own support service, which they've brought to more than 30 festivals all over Australia. We would have water, snacks, trauma-informed trained staff, a chill-out zone for people to just come and relax. Just a dedicated space that's actually dealing with sexual assault and harassment within the music festivals. Walking around the Yours and Ours festival recently, I wanted to know what people thought of the idea. I think that's a really good idea. Leaving them just next to the medical tents would be fantastic and they'd be beneficial. Absolutely, yeah. Festivals, there's so much chaos going on. It's so tricky to, like, get out of a crowd. I think having the attention straight away is really great like you know that's never really the case and having to sit on it can maybe cause some more issues but there's a catch a lot of festival organizers um and i hear it time and time again from festival organizers that sexual assault doesn't happen at their festival they still will disregard these stories and say our festival is really safe we don't need your services there's still so many festivals that won't even give a bar of us um, and that's quite scary, and we've sort of got this halt now where it's like, well, these festivals believe they're doing the right, that they don't need us because it doesn't happen. But then we're getting stories and stories after every festival, every weekend. And look, festivals do have measures in place to minimise harm, whether that's to do with sexual violence or drug and alcohol use. I asked the Australian Festivals Association what they're doing, and they gave me a statement. They said they encourage all their member festivals to include a peer-based harm reduction service at all events. The AFA is committed to a harm minimisation approach at all our member festivals. I was also curious to hear what the government thought about Sarah's calls for safe spaces dedicated to sexual assault support. This statement's from the New South Wales Department of Enterprise, Investment and Trade. Under the guidelines, Festival organisers should take reasonable steps to prevent sexual assault from occurring and should have a formal process in place for managing reports of sexual assault. But Sarah's point is that the issue is big enough to warrant specific and targeted support and she wants to see it mandated. Sexual violence is always just swept under the rug and just quite often forgotten about. And we saw that as a massive issue and it is a massive issue and it needs to be spotlighted and out there just as big as alcohol and drug prevention is at music festivals. Hack on Triple J. That story from reporter Brooke Chandler. And just a reminder, if this story's raised any concerns for you, you're looking for support, you can always call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Also, Lifeline, of course, is there on 13 11 14. Hack. Seriously, what are you seeing, that guy? He makes me laugh. On Triple Jack. Hey, what would you rank humour in a list of things you find attractive in a person? Is it right up there? Because some new Australian research is kind of suggesting humour could be really overrated when it comes to dating. That there's not really a link between how much a person makes you laugh on a date and how attractive you end up finding them. Does that surprise you? Because it kind of surprised me. Like, how important is funniness to you when you're dating someone? Message in 0439757555. Let's find out more about this study. I'm keen to know how it worked. Henry Wainwright is the researcher at the University of Queensland that looked into this. He's with us now. Hey, Henry, thanks for coming on Hack. 
Thanks for having me. What the hell? Are we all lying to ourselves about how much we find humour important in relationships? Well, it's funny you start by talking about preferences because in our study we did the exact same thing. We looked at people's preferences for humour before a speed date and we found an interesting sex difference, one which I think many listeners will relate to, namely that women report preferring a partner who's funny whereas men report preferring a partner who finds them funny. Oh, right. Okay. But when we look at the speed dates, we find that how much you laugh at your partner in no way influences how attractive you find them overall. And that was equally true for both men and women. Okay. I want to get into how you were looking at this. Can you take us through how the study worked? You mentioned speed dates there, and I read that you had to analyse more than 40 hours of dates. I'm just wondering, were you pulling up a chair at the bar at all these speed dates, or did you film things? Were you getting people to write reviews? How did it work? So essentially in psychology at UQ, students who take first-year psychology courses are required to kind of do research participation And so Brennan Zietsch, who supervised this project, has over a number of years had students come into the lab and have numerous speed dates with opposite sex partners. And he took the audio recordings from those speed dates and gave them to me. And it was my job to listen to them and code for instances of laughter, both laughter at their partner and uh, laughter at themselves. So that was an important distinction as well. Right. Okay. Were these, all these people, did they know each other outside of the dating situation? Like if they were all students together? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So an idea, the idea was that they wouldn't. Indeed, though, some did probably know each other, but the overwhelming majority had never interacted before. Principally because even though they're all doing psych subjects, most of them perhaps had seen each other in the lecture theatre, but had never interacted Okay, so Henry, take us through exactly what the findings were, Uh, because basically what you're saying here, right, is that even though we all list humour as a really important factor in terms of uh, deciding attractiveness in a partner, that's not the case. Yeah, essentially. So evidence from not only this study, but previous studies have found that people consistently report preferring humour in a partner when you just ask them what they go for or what they find attractive. But here we found no association between laughter and how attractive you rated your partner overall. And that was true of both laughter in response to something your partner said, so if you found them funny, presumably, as well as when your partner laughed at you, so when they were appreciating your humour. So in other words, funniness and humour appreciation didn't influence attractiveness when measured by laughter. Okay, I just want to confirm this, Henry, Mm -hmm. because this is breaking news for everyone listening here. If you're a funny person, very funny, crack up, you're hysterical to people around you, you are no more attractive to a potential partner, according to this study. At least as measured by laughter. So it's a little (laughs) complex because probably the most interesting finding was that the more your partner laughed at you, the funnier they rated you, and the funnier they rated you, the more attractive they rated you as well. Yet, how much they laughed at you in the first place didn't predict how attractive they rated you. So in other words, there was a bit of a disconnect between laughter and ratings of funniness. And what we speculate in the paper, and this is just speculative at this point, is that while genuine laughter may be in some instances attractive, 
there's a lot of laughter in these dates, which is sort of nervous laughter or awkward <laughs> laughter in an attempt, in response, I should say, in an attempt to perhaps uh, a failed joke. And we argue in the paper that these kind of instances of nervous or awkward laughter sort of undermine any of the positive effects that genuine laughter may may give you. So it's this is speculative at this point, but we, we kind of argue in the paper that maybe laughter is a bit of a mixed bag. Did you only look at uh, heterosexual couples? Yes, yeah, we did. And that's because we were testing an evolutionary theory of humour, which kind of relies on the whole premise of heterosexual partners just getting together and having children. Nonetheless, it would be incredibly interesting to look at this in relationships between same-sex couples, for instance. Mm, There's definitely messages on the text line. Someone says it's not about if they make you laugh. It's about if you're on the same page and laugh together, then smash. (laughs) Someone else says banter's where it's at. If they aren't funny, we aren't laughing, then what's the point? This is Hackham Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Henry Wainwright from the University of Queensland about this research he's done that's found being funny doesn't necessarily make you more attractive when dating. Henry, I I want to get back into that theory you were talking about that there might have been some evolutionary reason for funniness being attractive. Can you explain that? So essentially it begins with the first point that humour is likely an evolved characteristic because we observe it in essentially all human cultures. Now obviously the kind of things we find funny are culturally dependent but the fact is that we all find things funny irrespective of whatever culture we were born into And this suggests that humour and enjoying humour and being funny is likely an evolved trait. And so we tested one specific theory as to how humour might have evolved, which essentially argues that being funny requires these kinds of positive mental characteristics such as intelligence, creativity, quick-wittedness, and that these characteristics, when inherited by children, they help you survive because obviously being more intelligent in our evolutionary past would have led you to be more likely to survive and have children yourself. And so essentially what that theory then argues is that being funny and being attracted to funny people are kind of evolutionarily favoured because your children are going to be more likely to have these positive characteristics and they're going to be more likely to survive and have children, et cetera, et cetera. So funny people are smarter and that's why we would be more attracted to them is basically what the, what the claim is. Yeah, essentially. And this is just one evolutionary explanation. There are other explanations as well, which may be true. Some, some argue that humour in a relationship, it's not really about signalling how intelligent you are. It's about a sort of shared worldview And so it's more important to have a similar sense of humour rather than, say, one partner being funny and one partner appreciating humour. This isn't the first time you've looked into kind of attractiveness, though, what kinds of things we find attractive. What other findings have you had? So I was a co-author on a paper which looked at the kind of facial characteristics that we find attractive. We found that there are certain facial features which, when present in a speed dating partner, resulted in them being rated as more physically attractive. I believe it was facial similarity. So how similar your face was to your partner's. Is there a lot that we still don't know about attraction? Yes, because think of it this way, there are so many possible things that people find attractive in a partner, so many preferences that they have as well, things such as a preference for intelligence, 
a preference for humor, as we looked at here, for certain facial characteristics, you know, physical and psychological characteristics as well. There's one big distinction. And within those distinctions, there's, you know, hundreds of different variations that people might be attracted to. And so it requires a huge body of research to provide a comprehensive picture as to not only what we find attractive, but why we find it attractive in the first place. Because a big goal of this research is to try and determine whether or not what we find attractive, is that due to evolutionary reasons? Is it because it was evolutionary beneficial to be attracted to those features? Or is it perhaps more culturally dependent? Henry, do you consider yourself a funny guy? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think... Uh, and you're like, it doesn't actually matter, so... Yeah, I guess I would hope there's no bias coming into that, but uh, <laughs> no, I... We actually, there's some there's some research suggesting that even if I did think I was funny, that it's probably probably incorrect. People have pretty poor insight into into their characteristics. Now that's some more research that I'm really interested yeah. in. But so hey. who knows? Maybe the fact that I say I'm not funny means in reality I'm incredibly funny. But who knows? <laughs> Henry Wainwright from the University of Queensland. Fascinating stuff you're looking into, affecting so many of us. We appreciate you putting the hours in. Appreciate you also coming on Hack. Thanks for your time. Cool. Thank you very much. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.